Welcome to Coaching for a Living, a podcast for coaches who want to build financially viable coaching businesses and make a living doing what they love. I'm your host, Alisa Barkin, and I am thrilled to have you here. Are you ready to take the next step in your coaching business? Let's go. Hello, hello, onion rings. Welcome back to another episode, friends. Today we are joined by Anne Latham, who is the author of the new release, The Power of Clarity. Anne is the founder of US-based consulting firm Uncommon Clarity, and her clients represent over 40 industries and range from organizations such as Boeing, Hitachi, and Medtronic to nonprofits such as the Public Broadcasting Service, the United Way, and colleges and universities. Anne's advice has appeared in publications such as the New York Times, Bloomberg, and Management Today, and she's also an expert blogger for Forbes.com. She speaks frequently to a wide range of audiences and is a guest lecturer for the University of Massachusetts Eisenberg School of Management. Anne is also the sole recipient of a corporate award that she cherishes to this day, most likely to dispute recognized authorities. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Thank you for um, for accepting to uh, to join us. You are known as the Queen of Clarity, Anne, and for good reason. What caught my eye in your recent book is that clarity itself is actually a very unclear word, and we need to think about it on a continuum. And in order to do that, you've coined a new term, this clarity. Tell us more about that. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, clarity is incredibly unclear. No one really knows what that means. They talk about clarity as if it's this little spot in the sky and we're always a little ways away, you know, a little unclear, a little confused, a little, we need a little more clarity. It's like a little nudge will make everything perfect. We don't think about it on a spectrum. And the reality is that uh, you have to look at anything like that on a spectrum and try to figure out, you know, where are you really? So I decided that the spectrum needed to go from uncommon clarity on one end to disclarity on the other. And the reason I had to coin that term is because I got tired of typing a lack of clarity, a lack of clarity. So I say well, disclarity, it means no clarity whatsoever. And I think whereas a lot of people think they're clearer than they really are, so they might think they're pretty close to the clarity end of the spectrum, I decided that if I called it uncommon clarity, more people would go, well, I'm probably not that. <laughs> so it's a wide spectrum. And uh, I think by talking about real examples and where they fall on that spectrum, it makes us much more realistic about where things stand and what we need to change. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you've also added uncommon clarity to kind of make the spectrum a bit longer, because like you said, most people will probably think of themselves as, you know, I'm pretty clear. So now that they have the uncommon side of it, they probably put themselves somewhere in the middle. But actually in the book, you say that that's not true and that the default for for all of us, our natural state is that of this clarity. Why is that? We're absolutely closer to that end of the spectrum. And the first chapter of my book, The Power of Clarity, is called We Aren't As Clear As We Think We Are, and It's Costly. And so that whole chapter is about opening people's eyes to how unclear we really are. And in each case, I give examples, most of which I think people don't realize happen and realize that the problem is a lack of clarity. 
So the whole point is to, like I say, open eyes and, and see that we're not as clear as we think. And then I go back and actually explain, you know, or, or ask the question, where would you put this on the spectrum? And so for one example, for instance, a new director is asked by her vice president to look into the idea of putting sun cream dispensers in public parks that were branded and it was a healthcare um, organization. So the idea was that people would, you know, that mothers and fathers would get to the park with their kids and realize they hadn't put sun cream on and, oh, isn't this great? This organization has made it available for us. So this new director, eager to impress her boss, went off and she and her team of three or four people uh, developed this complete recommendation. They went into, you know, what would be the cost of installing these things? What would be the cost of maintaining them? Had other people done this? What kind of track record had they had? Um, what kind of permitting? Where would you put it? You know, so she did this huge <laughs> effort, <laughs> came up with a great proposal, brought it into her boss, and uh, her boss just rolled her eyeball and said, that's not what I wanted. The reality was that the, the vice president wanted a quick yes or no because she didn't like the idea at all. Another vice president thought this was a great idea. And when uh, she asked her employee to look into this, she just was hoping she'd get a, you know, 10 minutes later, oh, boy, that's a bad idea. So she could just get rid of it. So this new employees, you know, just spent like three weeks instead of the 10 minutes, wasting her time, wasting her team's time. Uh, the whole thing was trashed. You know, think in terms of the cost, in terms of not just the wasted time, but the the damage to um, her, the confidence her team had in her, her own self-confidence and her career. Because the next thing that happened is that that vice president hired me to coach this woman because she didn't exhibit good judgment. <laughs> so her job was practically on the line and her boss had lost faith in her right off the bat. But this is, and neither of them realized this all went back to the fact that the boss had issued this ridiculously unclear request of look into this. So on the spectrum from uncommon clarity to disclarity, I don't know about you, but I'd put it way down there on the disclarity end of the spectrum. And that's just one example. I could give you more. There's lots in the book. Yeah, we're, we'll, we're going to let the audience discover more examples for themselves. And I'll make sure to uh, link to the book in the, uh, in the show notes. But that is such a powerful story. And I think what's even more powerful is the fact that the executive didn't, didn't realize, they didn't have awareness of how this clarity was impacting uh, the way that they interact with their teams and the uh, the requests that they were asking of their employees. Awareness of this clarity is the first step towards clarity, and that is what you have helped yes. this uh, person achieve. Um, people who are listening to us are mostly coaches, and I think this is a powerful example of how a coach can raise this type of awareness in their own clients. But in order for them to do that, they probably need to be asking some questions or maybe there's an exercise that you can share with us that coaches can use. No, if only it were that simple. Okay, so the, the first chapter is we aren't as clear as we think we are. And, and I maintain we have clarity blindness. We don't see the disclarity around us. 
So the first step for anybody is to be able to see that disclarity and to recognize it as it occurs. And once you start seeing disclarity around you, oh my God, you can't not see it. It is everywhere. And by the way, it will drive you nuts <laughs> because it's everywhere. <laughs> I was invited into uh, an executive team meeting uh, to discuss a project I was going to do with this organization. And they asked if they could just talk about something else first because something urgent had come up. So I was just sitting and waiting for my turn. And these were like eight people, focused, smart, dedicated, hardworking, very successful executives. And they started talking about this issue. And I didn't last five minutes before I had to interrupt them. They were, you know, just looked at me with dagger eyes. Who is she to interrupt us at this point? But I said, do you realize you are talking about five different decisions and two different plans all at the same time? The glares continued. And then I listed the five decisions and the two plans. And that, that anger immediately dissolved into energy because it was immediately obvious that I was right. And secondly, it was immediately obvious what order they needed to make those five decisions. And they were just, you know, suddenly energetic. They made those five decisions and laid the first steps of those two plans in less than 15 minutes and they were done. And I guarantee you, if I hadn't done that, they would have talked for most of the hour and then had to schedule another meeting. So this business of talking about multiple decisions and multiple plans at all, all at the same time is so common. We do this all the time. This is what I call kitchen sink conversations. It's got everything in there, including the kitchen sink, you know, so we don't stop and get specific about what do we need to accomplish to move things forward. And if they had stopped and done that, they would have realized that, yeah, they need to make some of these decisions and then they could move on. So kitchen sink conversations, once you start being aware of those, you start hearing them everywhere and you realize we do them all of the time. So the book helps you understand how to tell the difference between a kitchen sink conversation and how to create, turn it into a conversation that achieves discernible outcomes that, that move things forward. Another thing that you talk about in the book that is also an indication of uh, there's a level of this clarity here are treadmill verbs. Yes. And after I read that part of the book, I could see them everywhere. I could see myself using them. I couldn't believe it, it was driving me crazy. But for, uh, for people who haven't read the book, uh, what are treadmill verbs and why should we encourage our clients to avoid them and replace them with destination verbs instead? Yes. Okay. And there's a perfect example because people don't notice that treadmill verbs are a problem today and we use them all the time. So... What is a treadmill verb? This is a, a, another term I coined to refer to verbs like review, report, share, update, communicate, uh, the kinds of words that are on our agendas and that fill our conversations. And the reason they're treadmill verbs is because they're like being on a treadmill. You never arrive. There's no way to know when you're done. You can report forever. You can review forever. There's no way to know. There's no clear outcome that you're moving toward. So if you ask someone to report a review, you are issuing 
an open invitation to just talk without purpose. So we shouldn't use these verbs because they don't get you anywhere. They're just a way of letting people talk. And people will talk, I guarantee it. <laughs> so, so in place of those, we need to use destination verbs, verbs like decide. And decide, first of all, you need to know that you know decision-making is like the most common and most important activity we engage in in our lives, in our businesses, in everything we do. But when you make a decision, you know when you're done because you have a decision and a decision unleashes next steps. It unleashes true progress. So another one is to plan. When you create a plan, you're done. You know it. It's obvious. You're ready to move on. It unleashes progress. Uh, Planning, you had a, there's a caveat there because some people can plan forever and turn it into a treadmill verb. <laughs> but it's um, if you're careful about what you're doing, plan it should be a destination. The third one is, is uh, resolve. If you resolve a problem, if you look into a problem, figure out what went wrong, figure out what you're going to do about it. When you come up with a resolution, you're done. You know you can move on. The fourth one is a list. Now, a list might sound funny, but the list needs to serve one of those other three. So, for instance, in order to make a plan, you might need a list of resources or a list of action items or a list of expenses or a list of risks. There's all kinds of lists that go into a plan. And there's lists that go into decisions and there's lists that go into resolving problems. But if you think in terms of the list you need right now, you know when you're done, when you finish the list, you put everything on there you can think of and you're done. So you can move on and you've unleashed the next steps. The last two are confirm and authorize. And those are much simpler. You're looking for a yes or a no. Um, authorize or approval, you're obviously you're just looking for someone to say, yes, you can implement, you can move ahead, you have my permission. Confirm is a little different because People typically will go into a meeting and say, so far I've done A and now I'm thinking of doing B. Am I on the right track? And all they want is a yes or no. And unfortunately, we're not clear enough and people just jump in and start laying advice on them, telling war stories, saying, oh, just wait till you get to you know, step 10. Of course, the reality is this person's on step two and they haven't given a thought to step 10 and they're not gonna even listen. you know. But if you're clear about, look, so far I've done A, now I'm going to do B. Do you think I'm on the right track? Just say yes it, or say no and take it offline and help them. But it unleashes progress. You know when you're done because you've got your yes or your no. So the cool thing is, is that there are dozens of treadmill verbs, but those six I just named are the only destination verbs that really matter. Those are the ones that will unlock progress in whatever you're trying to accomplish. So get rid of this treadmill verbs and use destination verbs instead. One thing that these destination verbs all have in common, in my view, and I think in your view as well, is specificity. Yes. And specificity is the first essential condition for achieving clarity. And in the book, you call it the habit of a clear mind. And you share four questions to help someone get specific about their outcomes. Uh, what are those four questions and why is it so important that we don't start any meeting or conversation without asking them? Yeah, well, my favorite one is, 
what needs to be different when we're done. And you should never start a meeting without knowing what needs to be different when we're done. And what I'm looking for is what are those tangible outcomes that will unleash progress? What decisions, what plans, what lists? And if you're clear about what those are, you will make real progress. If not, you will have another kitchen sink conversation. So those four questions are that one, first and foremost, what needs to be different when we're done? What exactly are we trying to accomplish? It really is asking the same thing. How will we measure success? And how will we know when we're done? So the favorite though is what needs to be different when we're done? And it boils down to what's the concrete, tangible outcome that we need to walk away with that we don't have now. And you're very strict about this in the book. And I like that when talking about outcomes, you say, well, it's redundant to say top priorities, right? Because priority, it was never supposed to be a plural word. So let's talk about that. How many things can we realistically focus on at the same time? And how can we tackle a never ending to do list? Right. Oh, those are such great questions. Priority comes from a Latin word that had no plural. There was no plural for priority. And sometime back in like the 1950s, someone made it plural. (laughs) And we should curse that person (laughs) because we've been overwhelmed by priorities ever since. And the problem is that once you have too many priorities, of course, you don't really have any priorities. And you can't do multiple things at the same time. You have only one brain. Uh, You can only do one thing really at once. I know people talk about being able to multitask, but every time you shift from one topic to the other, there's ramping out time and ramping back in time, and it's not very efficient. So the way I look at it, you can only have about three things on your to-do list at any given time if you hope to accomplish anything. And the only reason you want those other two is because sometimes you have to wait for something, you know, you're working on your top priority and you have to wait for someone to get back to you. So you've got something else to work on or something that you can squeeze into little snippets of time. But we can't have these giant to-do lists, but we do. And they come from any number of sources. Um, Man, I could talk for a long time about this, but for instance, when you're in a meeting, One of the things people do is they know that a meeting is a waste of time uh, a lot of times. So to try to save the meeting, they figure out what action items need to come out of that meeting. So it feels like they got something out of it. So at the end of the meeting, they stop and brainstorm, okay, what are our action items? And these action items might have absolutely nothing to do with the original point of the meeting. They also may have nothing to do with the main priorities of the organization or the group and have no relationship to the strategic imperatives. So we get these wonderful sounding action items that come out of kitchen sink conversations, which spanned all kinds of topics. So all kinds of interesting things were said and all kinds of interesting good ideas came up and suddenly they turn into action items and they land on someone's to-do list. (laughs) And it's like, how did that happen? (laughs) Why did I say yes? you flood, you flood your, your to-do list. Same with email. You know, email just comes piling in and it is basically another to-do list. So there's really only five, if you have too much to do, there's only five ways to deal with too much to do that are effective. And there's one way that is ineffective. Okay. And guess which one we always choose? 
the ineffective way. <laughs> so the first one is you need to find a faster method. And this doesn't mean just working harder and faster. It means you need a new method that actually gets things off your list faster. Second, you need to abandon. Figure out which things you really just plain don't need to do. The third is outsource or delegate. Doesn't necessarily have to be done by you. Get it off your list. Get someone who's more appropriate, especially outsource or delegate. And the fourth is find a shortcut. And shortcuts sound like a bad idea, but especially because a lot of us are perfectionists, it's like a lot of times you don't have to do everything perfectly. Some things can be done so-so, and that's good enough. The fifth one is postpone. You can't do it all today. You can't even do it all this week. So something needs to be postponed. So that's five completely legitimate ways to deal with too much to do. But instead, we choose number six which is choosing none of the first five. And that's also called wishful thinking. <laughs> so we don't make the tough decision and we just sit there with this huge to-do list and we spend more time moving things around on the to-do list or rewriting the to-do list or subdividing things on the to-do list so we can cross more things off. And the list is still just huge because we need to decide what can we throw out? What can we postpone? What can we delegate or outsource? Can we find a faster method and can we actually accomplish some of these things and get them done? But you need to make the tough decisions. Otherwise, it's wishful thinking. After you talked about that, I thought, actually, that it makes so much sense um, because how many times have you put something on a to-do list just so you can cross it off? To-do list now looks a bit messy let me put it into another document to make it look pretty again. All of a sudden, half an hour is gone. You haven't done anything. And that's because you're so overwhelmed by all of the things mm -hmm. that need doing. Just doing something feels like you're accomplishing things, but actually you're not being productive. You are just wishful thinking, yeah. <laughs> hoping that it will somehow fall from the sky, that you don't have to do those things anymore. Um, yeah. But uh, the five ones are very legitimate ways to get rid of a never-ending to-do list. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's good practice to constantly implement them because the to-do list will ever grow bigger and bigger. So it has to become um, an ingrained habit of trimming it down as much as possible and really focusing on what's important which right. is why the priority is a singular world and not a plural one right um, yeah, in chapter seven of the book you talk about the mantra choose start focus and finish and chapter seven is really an action governed chapter can you give us a brief overview of each of those four right steps? yeah yeah choose start focus finish uh, choose means choose with specificity you know what will be different when i'm done and this might be what will be different 15 minutes from now what will be done half an hour what will be done by before lunchtime what will be done by the end of this meeting that's all about making a choice every big accomplishment is a series of small accomplishments a series of small outcomes intermediate outcomes so what's the next outcome the concrete, tangible outcome that will unleash your next step. And a lot of times it's things like a decision, a plan, a list. What is it that you're working towards? So choose is to be really specific. What 
am I going to have at the end of this 15 minutes that I don't have right now? The second step is start. And this is about being really conscious and intentional about actually starting that task. Because a lot of times what we do is wander in. Well, let me just check my email first. <laughs> Maybe I need to uh, Google that thing I, that's been bugging me, you know, and so that I can resolve that, get that out of the way, or maybe I need to email that person. So we distract ourselves as much as we ever let other people distract us. But when you say, when it's time to start and you've made your choice about what you're going to do, you say, I am going to finish this, create this outcome by the end of this hour, and I'm going to do nothing else. And you can say that aloud to yourself. You can say that aloud to your office mate if you're in a room with someone because you're being really intentional about starting now. So the third one is focus. This is where you ensure that you actually only work on that item for that next 15 minutes or hour or whatever it is you designated as what you're going to do. And you should turn off all the distractions, close the door, put your, your phone on, do not disturb, close all the windows on your computer that aren't essential to the task at hand, Clear your desk, because when we see things out of the corner of our eye, they distract us. They, they take our focus off what we're trying to accomplish, and they make us think about something else. I keep one little five-by-seven tablet on the side of my desk, and if a wandering thought comes in and enters my brain and is trying to distract me, I'll quick make a note, make a note of it on that tablet, and then I'll go back to what I'm doing. Now, I just should mention, though, that if you really chose very specifically what you needed next, the next concrete step, that really helps your focus because you've broken things down into like, you know, a 15 or 30 minute chunk where you can get something done and that's motivating all by itself. So the last step is finish. And this is about just getting to that point and being done. So if you're almost finished with something, we have a tendency to say, oh, you know, I'll finish that after lunch or I'll finish that tomorrow. No, just finish it, get it done and be done. It's probably good enough. Let's, you can then start something new after lunch. And it, it also is good to help for perfectionists who, you know, want to think about it for another couple of days. Just be done, be done. So if you choose start, focus and finish, you grab these little snippets of things that you can do in relatively short periods of time. I mean, I, I wrote this book, it took me a long time, but I did it in you know one page at a time. It doesn't mean I literally walked away at the end of a page, but you, you write a book in small pieces. You don't sit down and write it start to finish. So break it down. What's the next tangible outcome I need? I'm starting now. I've closed everything off and out of my way. And now I'm gonna finish it before lunchtime. That's a... Wonderful productivity lesson right there. <laughs> um, and obviously your book, The Power of Clarity, is a companion for coaches who want to work with CEOs, founders, leaders, other professionals in a business setting to help them get more clarity. But from what we've been discussing so far today, it lends itself really well to serve as a tool to help coaches themselves get clarity in their own businesses. So on top of the examples that you've already shared, can you share another example of how the book can help coaches to get clarity for themselves inside their business? Right. Okay. So the, the first one, like I say, is that you start seeing the disclarity around you. You have to see it. 
It's only after you can see something that you can change it, that you can fix it. As long as you're clarity blind, you can't do anything. Secondly, we were just talking about priorities and being able to focus so that choose, start, focus, finish, and being real clear about what needs to be different in the next 15 minutes or half an hour, hour, can make a huge difference in your own productivity, obviously. We also talked about the, um, the destination verbs. I also turn them over to nouns, and these are the cognitive six. These are what you should be working for at any given time. You're working towards a decision. You're working towards a plan, a problem resolution, confirmation, authorization. Those are the kinds of things that will unleash progress and lists. I left out lists. Anyway, so if a coach is working with their own business, they need that level of specificity. They need that level of focus, um, and they need that level of awareness. But they also need to look at when they're working with their clients, what exactly is going to be different when I'm done with them? And that helps them figure out how to work together and what they're trying to achieve. So specificity and that ability to focus is huge. Now, that doesn't cover everything in the book, but I think those are a great start for coaches. Yeah, absolutely. And from my own experience, I know that the book would be a very good companion for coaches who are at the very beginning and are looking to put together a value proposition and they can't really put their finger on what is exactly that I'm offering. Because obviously with coaching, it's difficult to to pinpoint results because the results are the client's results. You can only guide them to find mm-hmm. those answers for themselves. However, when people buy from you as a coach, they want to buy something tangible. So how can you use the power of clarity to actually get more clarity yourself about what is it that you're offering? How are you going to work with people and what can they expect to get by the end of your time together? So I think the, uh, the book can be a very good resource to help them achieve that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that question, what needs to be different when we're done? I ask that of my clients when I'm negotiating a deal. I want to hear in their words, what will be different? You know, I don't want to just talk about vague, general things. I want to know how will this person behave differently when we're finished? What will actually be different? A very powerful question. Um, to pass the ball to your client and hear from them what is it that they would like to get in terms of value from you. It will help to increase that value proposition tenfold because yes. now you can speak in their in their own language. Right. So thank you so much for, sh- for sharing everything with us today, Anne. Uh, what is next for you and your business? What are you excited about? Well, I, I, I'm really eager for people to read this book. So I almost don't want to tell them that I'm writing another book because <laughs> to me, to me, this book, it's, it's, it's my legacy. I poured everything into this book because um, we didn't talk about other aspects of it, but the opportunity for improvement is enormous. And we've spent a lot of time in this world, improving physical processes. But we've done almost nothing to improve what I call cognitive processes. And a lot of the people in the workforce, everyone who's not on the production floor is more in the business of moving what I call cognitive objects. They move decisions, plans, ideas, strategies. So they're not moving boxes and parts and raw materials. And we don't have the toolkit, the cognitive toolkits and the, the ability to move 
ideas with the same levels of efficiency and effectiveness that we do physical objects. So mm-hmm. the, the opportunity there for improvement is, is just tremendous and it's like a whole new field. So yes, there was one topic that didn't get into this book. I didn't have room for it. So I'm writing a small book about that and that'll come out late in the fall. Excellent. So obviously writing a book was a very positive experience for you since you're doing it again. And uh, knowing how good your first book is, I look forward to reading the second one. Yeah, actually, I think that that writing books is a lot like childbirth. If you didn't forget the pain, you would never do it again. That's uh, no pressure, right? (laughs) For new authors. (laughs) That's right. But no, I think it's such a testimonial of your own expertise in the area. And like you say, a legacy. So without that book, so many people would be wondering in this clarity that it's almost worth the pain, I know it's gruesome because I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment as well, but the, the benefits of that for the audience and then for the yes. author as well are really great. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited for you and for your new book. And thank, thank you. you so much for, for sharing everything with us today. I'll make sure to leave all the links in the show notes for everyone to check it out. And uh, once again, it was a pleasure having you, Matt. Thanks a lot, Lisa. That was really fun. Good talking to you. You just finished listening to an episode of the Coaching for a Living podcast. Did you know that you can send me an audio message directly? Check out the show notes for a link that allows you to do that. You can use it to send in a question you have about building a coaching business or to simply share your impressions about the podcast and any suggestions for what content you'd like me to cover in the future. I cannot wait to hear from you. Again, check out the show notes for the link and who knows? Maybe I'll feature your message in a future episode. All right, that's it for today. I'm Alisa Barkan, and I'll catch you next time.